listening to the voice of islam radio assalamu alaikum peace and blessings to our listeners out there welcome to monday's edition of the drive time show you're here live with myself talaman and imam rana atta um how are you doing rana i haven't seen you for a while yeah i don't i can't, I can't actually remember when the last last time i saw you as well i don't, I don't even remember why i wasn't here for a long time I'm, i mean i'm sure i've been busy but yeah. um, yeah, I was supposed to be here a, a couple of weeks ago, but yeah. I think it was just um, for some reason I couldn't. But anyways, okay. yeah, it's yeah. It. So how have you been? Um, yeah, not too bad. It's yeah. um, I'm I'm surprised that the summer is about to come to an end, but it's like well, we're apparently we're having a mini heat wave. Yeah, this week, all right? of a sudden it's like well, you know, why, where was this uh, throughout August where <laughs> where it should have been. Well, heat wave times. But. I mean, funny enough, we've touched on the uh, subject of weather. Yeah. So, um, as as usual, here on uh, the Drive Time Show, we address quite you know some uh, situations or issues that uh, affect society as a whole. Yeah. And weather is a big one. We're looking, I think, in our first hour uh, regarding wildfires and the need for. Yeah, the need to be aware. I think. I mean, we, we've titled it, or the producers have titled it, "Climate Change." Mm -hmm. But uh, just before we came on air, I was just uh, relating to Rana here. You know, I was at a family gathering, and there's still a lot of. I mean, I don't know if you found it, Rana, but um, yeah, skepticism around climate change. Yeah, um, it's it's not like a, something that I would be discussing generally with like uh, my I'm not saying that <laughs> you're, you're you're saying we're boring yeah no no uh, <laughs> in my so, sort of social circles it's not something that we just like randomly discuss but um, look it, there is a there, there does come this point in life where you start having to uh, look around not just for yourself but for your um, you know your family and mm. your your relatives and what is a better future for them yeah. uh, especially your children as well mm -hmm. and the differences in regards to what it was like growing up uh, and what it is going to be like growing up for your mm -hmm. future generations so climate change of course is going to be a very serious subject in the um, mm. in the even right now and uh, in the future mm. because uh you know with climate change that's i think that's the problem with it because it's not tangible within you know let's say like five years well actually we're seeing the, the i suppose the the sharp end of the stick now yeah. um and we'll be you know looking more in depth uh, when we approach this uh, the, the, the segment but you know we see it with these uh, freak weather systems that we're having globally uh this in particular where we're addressing the wildfires which are you know currently all through Europe right um, and it's just that I suppose with climate change it's not like I say 
such a tangible thing, uh, i.e., that you see it on a day-to-day basis. It's it's more of a gradual, gradual, gradual basis, yeah. and you have to trust the science. Yep. So we'll be we'll be uh, delving more into that. Uh, we've got a couple of guests as well to talk about those wildfires in our first hour, and then we'll be talking about it in our second hour. Well, in the second hour, um, it's a very you know, it's a, I would say it's a bit more of a sensitive subject mm-hmm. in regards to a, a particular nation mm-hmm. or a national identity or a history in regards to Afghanistan. So right. um, we'll be discussing how, um, you know, what is the future, what is the current, what is the past, mm-hmm. um, where do we see Afghanistan, mm-hmm. uh, wh- what way is it heading. Mm-hmm. Um, so that will be the uh, theme of discussion. I think it's a very, um, and, it, and, and uh, it's quite a relatable subject in regards to um, the first aspect is that it is an Islamic nation mm-hmm. and secondly this is an Islamic nation that has a, a deep-rooted history mm-hmm. um, not a very fond history but mm-hmm. with uh, for instance the Ahmadiyya community as well there mm-hmm. is like um, you know um, that element of it as well which we will mm-hmm. obviously be we should be touching upon mm-hmm. in the second hour yeah and we'll be looking more I suppose at the contemporary issue of yep. Afghanistan and I suppose the broken promises exactly really yeah Uh, so without further ado let's jump into the first hour or our first topic which is um, wildfires the need for climate change Um, and I think you know I would caveat that with actually not climate change but climate or awareness of the situation and not just awareness but just actually stop sitting on your hands and thinking that yeah, it's someone else's problem. Yeah. And I think a lot of um, nations think that, well, actually, you know what, it's not our problem as yeah. such. And the, you have that, uh, what's the saying, kicking the can down the road, right? Yeah. And it's someone else's problem, maybe they can deal with it. And we're seeing that, uh, you know, we have, uh, in terms of more specifics, currently these wildfires yeah. so recent wildfires uh, in Europe uh, specifically in countries like Italy Algeria and Greece have killed more than 40 or 40 people uh, and thousands have been evacuated in the Mediterranean area um, what comes to mind is the island of Rhodes we saw yeah. that you know people literally um, jumping into the sea yeah. Uh, to save themselves, right? Uh, now, these devastating infernos release vast amounts of uh, carbon dioxide, CO2, uh, methane and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, uh, contributing to the greenhouse effect and further warming of the planet. Um, wildfires play a significant role in climate change, uh, creating a dangerous feedback loop uh, which worsens the global warming situation. Now, given the severity of this issue, I mean, this is what we're going to be discussing uh, in the program today. Uh, f- and, you know, this is a very severe issue for both us as individuals yep. and society as general. I mean, we always like to look um, at contemporary issues and problems that, um, you know, are, are besetting society nowadays through the prism of Islam. I mean, does it say anything in the Holy Quran regarding this? Yeah, the Holy Quran says, and if you try to count the favors of Allah, you will not be able to number them. Surely Allah is the most forgiving and merciful. And um, so, you know, is there any, can you expand Yeah, I mean, like, um, one of the favors that he gave us is life, okay? If we look at it, uh, if we look at where we live, the earth, 
any closer to the core of the earth, life would not exist at any distance out of the ozone layer. Life does not exist. Out of the ozone layer, life does not exist. Mm. The same with the position of the earth from the sun. If any closer or further, life wouldn't exist. So it only makes sense that we take extra care to protect it. So, um, look, the thing is, uh, the, the, in regards to this verse itself, uh, the biggest, um, you know, the, what it highlights is that life is the most precious uh, element that we as a as a world or mm-hmm. in terms of world community you know we need we need to realize the preciousness of it and what it takes to mm-hmm. uh, protect it and uh, this is like a, obviously the holy quran is a very deep and profound book uh, it it this this pretty much touches on um, you know the whole essence of uh, the gift uh, that God Almighty gives mm-hmm. uh, humanity itself, you know, you don't realize anything. Um, you don't. Uh, you don't. You only appreciate whatever you can as long as you're alive. Okay, mm-hmm. so um, this element uh, needs to be uh, taken. Uh, the protection of it is 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 highly important. The mm. protection of life. Yeah, I think um, what we tend to do as human beings is we're just here in the present. Yeah. We don't really look forward. We don't look. Yeah, we 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 we're nostalgic. Yeah. We look at the past, yeah. maybe. Um, but with as regards to as we look at this problem of uh, global warming, climate change, and we can see. You know, I mean, even although we haven't really been impacted by wildfires here in the UK, yeah. uh, you see it globally. I mean, Maui yeah. uh, in Hawaii, it's been devastated. Yeah, roads uh, in Greece has been devastated. I mean, in, in, in considering our setting. Um, this this uh, you know urban setting uh, there's so many things that we just will not will never experience mm-hmm. um but we would only we would only see them on but then okay so going back to the kicking the can down the road yeah then you know whose responsibility is it then well to uh, sort the issue out yeah, yeah. um well, it's definitely the ones who are capable of, uh, who have the ca- uh, the capacity to deal with it. It mm-hmm. is their responsibility because you could, you know, you, 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 if you have the um, facilities, if you have the, for instance, the scientists that have the knowledge to deal with it, mm. it is. I would say it is their responsibility because um, others may not be up to speed for mm. whatever reasons in regards to the econ- economic development of those nations. So I would contest, right, with that statement or contend with that con- statement because, you know, we can do, we're in the studio, is that, so we can't abrogate the responsibility. The responsibility actually lies to everybody. Everybody, yeah. But obviously there's policy makers at yeah. the top uh, who they take on scientific yeah. advice regarding uh, global, the climate change around yeah. around the globe. And I, I think the point I was trying to you know, push you towards yeah. maybe was that actually it's a joint responsibility. It's, a, it, it, it's it no is. one nation's exactly. responsibility individually. It's a it's, it's a, a joint it's a responsibility. Thing. But 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 what what my point of view on that is that look, for instance, the co- what we've recently everyone it's been exposed to everyone. Okay, the COVID situation. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a joint responsibility for the whole world to work as one to sort this issue out. Now, the extra responsibility lies on those who have. Those uh, those facilities, that medical research, that level of um, you know scientific um, expertise expertise to find the solution. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, uh, I don't know. Obviously, the government would have backed 
um, Oxford researchers, mm-hmm. Pfizer and all of these lot, uh, of course they would be backed. But they took it upon themselves because they knew that we have it, we have the capacity to solve mm-hmm. this. Others m- will try. So, but then, okay, this is actually, this is very, very good um, yeah, example you're pu- yeah. pulling up, right? Because to me, it actually exposes the lack of urgency regarding climate change then. Because the pandemic, it was affecting everyone. People yeah. were dying, right? So within, you know, over months, uh, Oxford, in connection with, I think, AstraZeneca, yeah. right, they were able to bring aboard yeah. a vaccine, right? Yeah. Which in normal circumstance, you know, these vaccines take uh, maybe five years, ten yeah, years yeah. to develop and actually trial out. Lots of trials, yeah, And exactly, then yeah. roll out, right? But... Because, you know what, when push came to shove, shove they, had they to needed this yep. silver bullet, right? Yep. So why, upon why, is the government, right, not just of this country, but, uh, you know, other nations as well, why are they not taking climate change as, a se- as seriously as, say, for instance, the pandemic? Um, it's... <sighs> My point of view is that the pan- the pandemic was taken seriously simply because, uh, obviously, the importance of saving lives, but the strain on the NHS that would have been caused if they hadn't taken it seriously. Mm-hmm. So uh, y- you're right in regards to the push uh, comes to shove. They haven't yet been pushed to that point where they have no other, um, you know, they have no other reason to just put everything aside and just focus on this issue so um, and I pray that it never actually gets to that point as well so mm-hmm. you know it's uh, but I think that's that's the point I'm yeah. trying to stress is that you know with climate change these wildfires flooding around the world it's not tangible or yeah. okay it is tangible because we see the effects yeah. right but it's not tangible on a day to day basis and yeah. it's not so kind of uh, what's the word I'm looking for Imperative yeah. to sort it out. Like, for instance, wh- wh- where wh- where would uh, while, let's say if, uh, where are the policymakers to make these things happen? Okay, mm. you know, uh, Westminster is in London. Okay, um, Washington isn't ever. Do you think Washington would ever be affected by a flood or? Exactly. Mm, who knows? So, so who knows? I've seen. I've seen. It's 2012, where, right? The it's, film. So the, yeah, it's where it's where the you know in those areas. If the you know if 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 these areas where the policymakers are you know residing mm. and all that, I yeah, guess but, you know even in, if so they're in, under threat, of course you're gonna. Oh no no, we have to save our. Um, yeah, we have to save our backs. Yeah, really, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, and 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 that's and that's the point. I think that until. Uh, really push comes to shove and it comes to your own doorstep. Yeah, exactly. That's right? the point. And you are a developed country yeah. and you are, say, for instance, one of the uh, veto powers of NATO yeah. or you're uh, part of the G7, yeah. Yeah, that you will make a concerted effort because it's a problem which, by, like I say, uh, it's, 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 an, well, it's a paradox, right? Yeah. And I think that's what I was trying to get to because... Although we are seeing the effects yeah. with these wildfires, with these floods, and it's impacted upon because okay, we just quoted a stat there. You know, roughly forty odd people have died. Yeah. But can you imagine the impact on a country's infrastructure, having a whole city burned down? Yeah, it's just um, you know. So that must cost. Yeah, that that there is a cost, and then it, co- it causes huge backlogs in everything, uh, and generally, yeah. Mm, exactly. But coming back to uh, wildfires and how they actually impact. And one of the things that I, I 
personally hadn't um, thought about was actually, you know, the you know, these fires, masses of carbon dioxide, methane are released into our atmosphere, yeah, atmosphere. right? Of which you know we're all breathing, yeah. uh, and just affect the global warming. Yeah, it's, 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 it's just continuous knock-on effects. Yeah, it's like a real kind of yeah. like um, what's the word accelerator, yeah. right? It's uh, to to where we're getting to with climate change. But um, I mean, yeah, how you know, Rana, will these uh, wildfires impact uh, the you know the area? Well, as homes, as the homes and lives that were devastated by the fire start to recover, there are worries about how the habitats that were burned will heal and come back to life. This is made even more difficult because the risk of more wildfires happening every year is increasing due to the climate change. For a long time, wildfires have been a normal part of how things work in Medi- Mediterranean ecosystems. But now, with fires getting bigger and more intense, we're wondering if these landscapes can still recover like they used to. Is this a temporary setback or are we seeing a lasting change in how the Mediterranean area looks and works? According to Jenny Williams, a senior spatula analyst based at the Royal Botanical Gardens in Kew, London, UK, Mediterranean ecosystems are designed to burn. Jenny uses advanced tools like drones and satellites to monitor how vegetation changes after forest fires. She highlights the vital roles of wildfires, explaining that they are normal and crucial part of these ecosystems. In fact, some species wouldn't be able to survive without them. Mm. Many species have hard causing on the seeds that don't release until fire ignites. Then, after a fire, you get this massive explosion of seedlings. She says, well, Jenny explains, places, well, Jenny explained that, places like the Mediterranean and other areas with similar climates are known as biodiversity hotspots. Despite making up just a small portion, 5% of Earth, uh, a small portion, which is 5% of the Earth's land, these regions are home to a surprisingly large amount, or 20% of its biodiversity. Interestingly, these fires can actually help increase biodiversity. A recent study published in Ecology Letters showed that places with more diverse fire-affected areas, known as pyrodiversity, tend to have higher overall biodiversity. Okay. Hmm. Pyrodiversity is the variability in the fire regime. Its frequency, its intensity, uh, its which is its frequency, its intensity, states Adam Pellegrini, associate professor in plant sciences, sciences at Cambridge University. Adam's works involve studying the characteristics that enable plants to cope with fire and explaining how shifts in fire patterns affects their their capacity to bounce back over countless years mediterranean plants are believed to have gradually adjusted to the presence of fires by developing specific qualities that enable them to thrive in such surroundings mm. i mean that's you know that kind of information reminds me of uh back in the day my o-level geography right uh i don't know if you remember back in you know when we were doing gcse's or the Actually, yes, you had to have that uh, slash and burn, mm-hmm. yeah, so that uh, ground, basically, ground would become fallow, mm-hmm. right? Because if you think, yeah, we over farm land, yeah, right, and you're taking those nutrients out of the land, and so for, uh, I think, I, 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 you know, please call us on o two o eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight if you can correct me, but you're supposed to. There was a crop rotation, right? Okay. So you would grow certain crops on a piece of. 
you know, land, yep. and then you would leave it fallow. And in other areas, you would have this slash and burn because you would burn um, the the vegetation, so that that vegetation would then create nutrients and give back to the land. Mm-hmm. And then I understand, you know, the the obviously this uh, argument for biodiversity, but there must be a limit, right? Uh, to the area that is engulfed by fire. Yeah, I guess so. Because, because uh, you know what? you know, we, we, I think you quoted it. Was it 5%, yeah. right? Uh, you know, despite making up a small proportion, 5% of the Earth's land, these regions are home to a surprisingly large amount, 20% of its biodiversity. Yeah. So, yes, I understand that. You know, it needs to... Yeah, the land needs to replenish. Uh, we need to have all these different plants, flora and fauna varieties, mm. and they thrive, right? Yep. But that's in the way of nature. Some of these wildflowers now are not really natural, mm. right? You know, maybe I think um, one of the fires I was like reading, they they were saying that it was um, you know. Man-made, i.e., it was is started by you know a couple of couple of guys, right? Just, and it's yeah. just gone, got out of control. Yeah. So that's Some, someone may not have blown out their cigarette or something. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah, like right. Like, yeah. So, you know, th- there is a fine point. I think there's a fine line between something which is required uh, and is controllable uh, to something which is yeah, yeah, totally uncontrollable, control, right? Yeah. Um, but you know, hopefully, we're going to get some guests on who uh, we're going to be able to talk more regarding this issue. Now, uh, in talking about, um, I mean, like I said, we, we, you know, we are the voice of Islam, the Drive Time Show, and we you know, need to kind of look at the Islamic uh, perspective regarding climate change. Uh, now, as we've mentioned earlier on, you know, we emphasize the or Islam in itself emphasizes the importance of protecting the environment and preserving it for future generations. Um, it, for example, the Holy Quran states, "The world is beautiful and verdant. Verily, Allah, uh, be He exalted, has made you His stewards in it." Uh, the concept of stewardship is an essential principle that emphasizes the responsibilities of humans to take care of the earth and its resources. So, when we try and examine that statement, I personally don't think society now in the developed world has that idea of stewardship um if we think about stewardship i don't know you know if you look at uh, the indigenous aboriginals right of australia and uh, his holiness the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya muslim community uh, may allah be pleased with him I remember one uh, question and answer session where he talked about uh, the indigenous Aborigines and that they were more likened to uh, being stewards or their way of thinking is that, you know what, we have no possessions in this world. We are but passing through. Yep. Yeah. And whilst we're here, we need to look after the land. And if you actually look at... Um, they're nomadic to to a certain extent, actually to a, to a high extent. Um, and with that being a nomadic type of people, they just move around. Yeah. So there's no ownership. I mean, if you compare that to, say, for instance, here in the UK, 
we have ownership full stop right mm-hmm. you want to own your own house you have a little plot of land whatever it is um and you know that belongs to you know you rana or it belongs to me yeah. talib right and um, you know we're happy with that but their idea is that actually you don't own anything the world is your yeah because it's been created yep and you are actually only there you you t- you you make use of the resources that the world provides you with whether it be food shelter but you don't take so much of it that the world in itself or nature in itself cannot survive um yeah and in that sense as well i would say that uh, ownership as compared to that um you know that thinking of ownership in regards to the land or this area is your uh, is the whole world is yours as compared to my own land is mine i believe like uh, the laws in england uh, you you would know better as well i mean i, I haven't mm. yet got to the stage where uh, i own a house myself but you know it it isn't really yours you have to um, even if you do own it you have to follow the uh, the landscape rules of mm-hmm. the country as well so um, i believe look um, from what i've seen in regards to england itself i love the one element of it which i love is that uh, there is this sense of protection of the um, you say the, the 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 green element and mm-hmm. the, the preservation yeah the, the the preservation of uh, its its nature and its uh, you know its natural and its domestic uh, settings as well so um they they that you know that side of it really does reflect to me that even though they may not be following uh, the holy quran in this regards that this uh, you know this advice that you are the stewards of this world um but yet they have this sense of responsibility or where we are uh, th- this country or even throughout the world of of course there is this sense of preservation mm-hmm. of the actual uh, beauty of it but look this is this is a question in regards to preservation versus uh, modernity and mm-hmm. um, improving of the infrastructure okay mm-hmm. either you preserve it to the point where there is uh, there is no such thing as uh, modernizing mm-hmm. uh, m- making buildings making houses making roads uh, you know um, or you stop uh, or you say well th- there has to be a balance there has to be an element that needs to be preserved But for then, its beauty you know rana we're, we're actually moving into a different i suppose yeah. discussion now right it's you know preservation of what we have or I believe you can have a, a movement because life is about change, right? Yeah. No building, as we you know you see in the news currently. Yeah. So, for instance, a, a school, for instance, yeah, right? Yeah, it has been crum- uh, yeah, crumbling, it's, it's crumbling, right? Yeah. Because of the materials that have been used. That is definitely another topic for another yeah. another occasion. But I'm not obviously you can't be against you know, modernization, right? Modernity. but i'm a true believer that modernity has to be coupled with uh responsibility as to your environment yep. right and it's not just paying lip service to say like okay look you know we let's let's think about our carbon footprint let's be eco friendly um because say for instance uh the government currently will make a decision regarding say for instance house building um this came out last week uh the minister for um i think house building <coughs> loosened up legislation regarding where houses can be built uh the and if you think about it rana right yes we do need housing this is a huge problem yeah. right within this country 
but do we just go ahead and build houses without any thought of um, ha- the impact of all those people yeah. in an area? Fair enough. We live in London currently, right? London has a sewerage system. Um, we don't have to say, for instance, you know, you use your toilet at home, you flush your, you know, waste yeah. away. It goes into the the drains and the sewers, right? If you suddenly say, right, okay, we're going to start building in the green belt, mm. and you build thirty odd thousand homes, just simply. Where is the the sewerage and the waste of those thirty odd thousand homes going to go? It was it's probably into the, in, into, into, the in, in, into the, the ecosystem, yeah, yeah, right? Exactly. So it has to be any development has to be coupled with the responsible you know, a responsible attitude to where our environment is. Because yeah. you know, I, I don't know if you picked up that bit of news. Um, I think uh, a competition in the south, swimming competition out in the sea, had to be cancelled, yeah, right? One, I, I did, I think. Yeah, yeah. because of you know, uh, the local water company yeah. venting sewerage into and the waste into the sea. Yeah. And because legislation allows them to, they're going to do that, right? Yeah. And I didn't really notice that there was that much rain because mm. I think that is the precondition that they're allowed to, you know, basically open up the the, the systems to allow sewage and waste to go into rivers and the sea. Yeah. Is that you know okay? Because we're having storm overflow, mm. right? And we can't manage uh, that volume of water. So then, therefore, we have to vent out. So, you know, it is a touchy subject. But really, I think going back to the point you made right at the top of the program was that actually we are so materialistic now. We're so self-centered that we don't think about actually the impact that we as individuals and then in general as a society has for future, not just us, our kids, but for generations to come Come, yeah yeah i mean what else does it say uh in uh, from an islamic point of view regarding this well islam emphasizes the importance of caring for one's community and helping those in need the impacts of climate change such as wildfires often disproportionately affect vulnerable communities so both working to mitigate climate change and helping those people uh, helping those people out can be seen as an act of solidarity and support for those who are most affected. The Promised Messiah al-Islam, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, once said, My purpose, yearning and heartfelt desire is to serve humanity. This is my job, this is my faith, and this is my habit, and this is my way of life. So, in regards to the um, Islamic teachings uh, on this sub uh, on this subject, or generally, mm. um, I would say, look, the Promised Messiah Islam has made it very, you know, his purpose or his advent in this life, um, you know, is is very much uh, characterized in these beautiful words that look, I'm 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 here. I've been sent to you by God Almighty after a you know after a long delay in in, in regards to prophethood. Um, I am now here to. Uh, my service is for this world and the people of this world, and um, you know this is my belief. So Islam uh, has a very strong emphasis on the service of humanity in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's not a 
it's it's not a self-sufficient religion it's a mm. religion that serves uh for the better good mm. so that's the overall i would say the view of islam in regards to this mm. well we're going to go to a short break uh and in fact yes we're going to go to a short break um and join us back after the break uh when we'll be t- talking more about uh climate change and wildfires Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome back to Monday's uh, edition of the Drive Time Show. Sorry, we're having a few technical issues, but hey ho, that's live radio for you. Anyway, we're joined by our first guest of the day, uh, Matt Oakley. And uh, Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, Matt. Thank you for joining us and being persevering, I should say. Um, Yeah, we've had a few issues, but we've got to you in the end. So we're talking about um, the wildfires and climate change. Um, And, you know, your role at uh, Surrey Fire and Rescue Service. Can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, what your role is there, Pat? So I've been working with Fire and Rescue now in Surrey for about 25 years. Mm -hmm. And for about the last 23 of those one of my specialisms has been the increase of wildfires in the UK right. and looking at global impact of how the fires affect human uh, human habitation in the southeast of England and beyond mm-hmm. so I mean with that Matt right so so you know it's the impact that wildfires have I mean we were seeing obviously on the news uh, all these wildfires in the Mediterranean and globally I mean what is actually you know in I mean in the recent years we've we've seen that rise in temperature even here in the UK I mean has that contributed to this increasing amount of wildfires and you know ultimately what is the knock-on effect to the environment okay so it's it's in isolation, the, temp- the, the temperature of the planet is, plays a key factor in how fires developed across the world. Fire is a, a, you know, one of the basic earthly elements of, of the planet. So it's always existed. It's always going to exist. What we've got at the moment is a combination of increasing global temperatures through impact of human habitation, industrialization, and combine that with the increase in vegetation we've got and land management across the world put people and populations on the edge of these beautiful habitats and you've got a combination of factors so you've got fuel you've got the temperature and you've got potential source of ignition and when you have increased temperatures for prolonged periods which is what the increase in global temperatures do it puts all that vegetation ready at ignition point and puts people at risk so and we're seeing that temperature increase on larger parts of the planet which means that we as a population in certain parts of the world need to start getting prepared for this as a natural occurrence and a regular occurrence so in regards to this uh, increasing why are you know you know that is the question why are wildfires getting more frequent and intense around the world it's because of those things you know yeah. we, we we've got this vegetation that we we all want to live in beautiful parts of the world and we've started to create what's called more, more frequently what's called an urban wildland interface uh, which is how we deem it in the in the trade so to speak mm-hmm. and it's where populations start to inhabit edges of beautiful parts particularly the southeast of england we've got some of the most beautiful lowland heathland in the, on the planet mm-hmm. but around all that area we've got huge amounts of infrastructure and human activity be it for industry, transport, military, um, 
recreation and where you have people interacting with natural vegetation then that's where you get the ignition and the, mm -hmm. in the uk it, people tend to be the problem whether that's accidental neglectful uh, deliberate human interaction is is the key in the uk as to why we have these fires mm. so matt i mean what can we as individuals um and society as a whole you know do to try and you know lessen the impact that we have and actually try and stop these wildfires from occurring i'll give you um so if we if we had this radio conversation in australia mm -hmm. or uh, the california coast and we were discussing people having barbecues and uh, bonfires during the weather we've just now started to have where we're venturing into 30 degree temperatures it would be a different conversation mm -hmm. they are very well educated into the risks of fire and the impact it has on risk to health risk to life risk to property we are still in that very steep learning curve in the uk because it has always historically been a, 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 a very remote event. Every 10 to 12 years, we would have a hot summer and fires would happen. What we're seeing now, and the education of the public still needs to catch up and for everybody, is we need to understand these are yearly events now. The temperatures mean we are going to have weather which causes wildfire every year mm. from here on in. And we need to be mindful and make sure we, when we're burning off bonfires in our gardens and having barbecues out in public spaces we understand that where there's an ignition source and open vegetation the potential for fire is very real mm, so we have to really change the mindset that uh, we have here in this country to being um, you know, more kind of an arid uh, i suppose an arid a more um ignition friendly i should say yeah. uh situation well matt uh thank you very much for your perseverance and staying on the line thank you very much it's no been a pleasure speaking to you this afternoon great talking to you thank thanks you. for having me bye-bye oh two oh eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight and uh we're gonna go straight to our next guest as well uh and we have uh jim mcneil who's uh deputy chief fire officer uh wildlife wildfire lead at northumbrian fire and rescue service uh peace and blessings be upon you jim thank you for joining us on the drive time show today yeah thank you very much and uh, and the same same to yourself Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you uh, once again for your perseverance as well. Um, so we're talking about wildfires. I mean, Matt was just saying that, you know, here in the UK, our environment has changed um, to, to really basically have that, uh, I suppose, the susceptibility for these wildfires here uh, you know, at our doorstep. And we're not just looking at um, the news that's happening over in the Mediterranean. So, you know, in, in this kind of anticipation of this hot and dry weather, and we're in a uh, supposedly kind of like hot mini spell currently, yeah. you know, how do firefighters like yourself prepare for that? Yeah, so I, I listened closely to the, the points that, that Maj spoke about. And I, I think education plays a, a massive part in, in everything I'm just going to speak about. Um, so I, I absolutely chime in accord with the, the points that Matt had, uh, had made. So our, our brave firefighters train for a, a wide range of, of events, including wildfire. And especially as I'm looking out my, my window here back up in Northumberland, it's mm -hmm. 25 degree temperature that's going to run the rest of this week. 
So our, our Brave Cruise train very hard for a wide range of, of operational incidents. But what we do to support that, probably a bit greater, because every wild, wild, wildfire has its own dynamic. We have got specialist equipment we can deploy onto a, a wildfire. We have different types of firefight medium that allows us to put a, a very fine mist onto the fire to, you know, to knock down the fire and extinguish the fire. Mm-hmm. But one of the things we also have, we've got 50 national TAC advisors, so tactical advisors that can be deployed at any given time to help the, the operational commanders on scene to work on a, a, a series of plans and actions to mitigate the, the impact of the fire in terms of wind direction and flame growth. Highly skilled people, highly motivated, and, and we use them to take a really good, good effect. The, the bit for me is the environment is not going to change. We know climate is slowly changing. We're mm-hmm. getting drier, warmer periods. If I take you back to Matt's point, we will deal with wildfires as and when they, they take place. The smart money is to get upstream as much as we can to mitigate, prevent, and educate, so that we don't end. But you know, we don't find ourselves on a, a wildfire and, and putting crews and members of the public in premises and properties at risk. And I think we saw that when we look back in 2022, the dramatic events of wildfire. So I, I guess to summarise, our crews are alive to the, the weather. They train exceptionally hard. And I'm talking on behalf of all the, the fire and rescue as a sector as a whole. We stand ready to send our, our crews back onto uh, various events so we can deal with wildfires and bring them to a speedy conclusion. Mm-hmm. I see, Jim. And could you elaborate on the factors that play a role in the spread and intensity of wildfires? Yeah, of course. So probably this year, not. I'll give you a couple of facts and figures in a, in a, in a few seconds. If you th- think about 2022, the, the high the high temperature we had, the temperatures mm-hmm. above 40 degrees. What I, what I look at very closely, what I, I analyse is the wildfire season happened earlier, mm-hmm. so it crept forward to the, the start of the, the year and it lasted longer. The, the thing that propagates, the thing that supports fire growth, and again, if we take you back to the point Matt spoke about in Australia, when you've got long periods of dry weather, mm-hmm. then the, the ground is so hard that even when it does rain, the, the water doesn't penetrate the, the ground. Mm-hmm you get the prime the prime conditions for uh, you know something like a a drop cigarette a disposable barbecue left un- unattended these are absolutely prime times where the smallest of fire can have a major impact because the when the vegetation turns there the kind of brownie color mm-hmm. that means there's no moisture and therefore that propagates that allows the, the, the wildfire to really grab a grab a hold really really quickly mm-hmm. So, have you personally observed any shifts in the frequency and severity of wildfires? So, one of the things, and again, I touched on that in a, in a question just a, a few minutes ago. I look at the, the stats around wildfire very closely, mm. and I'll run through just a, a few to give you an idea. So, across England and Wales in 2021, we had a total of 247 wildfires. Mm-hmm. In 2022, that figure jumped up to 983. Wow, over double. And yeah, as of three, today, three times. this year, we have got 274 wildfires that's been recorded within our recording tool. So going between 2021 to 2022, that's a 573% jump wow. in wildfires. Across two days in the middle of July in 2022, we had 84 wildfires. Right out, so, you know, you guys and girls down in London are, are close to all of that. We had we had 14 fire and rescue services during that time who declared a major incident because of the severity. 
and the number of wildfires because the environment and the climate was right at that time. Longer weather, drier periods, we run the risk of more wildfires and the wildfires lasting longer within the season. So yeah, there's been, a, there's been quite a marked jump up in the, the number of wildfires we get every year. Mm. So, yeah, going back to your point then, uh, and yeah, Rana corrected me because I said double, it's, it's almost Not treble, sure. right? It's almost trebled. So, uh, is this just directly correlated, you know, these 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 wildfires, uh, directly correlated to just the the environment now, you know, the climate change? Well, can you make that correlation? Yep. That's what I'm trying to say, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot that I work on at UK government level in terms of actually getting the analytics to the point whether this is totally linked to climate. Mm-hmm. The, my my opinion is the, the, the National Fire Chief Council lead. If you look at the, the, the long dry weather we had across 2022, it will not give you any, any surprise. That's when we had our highest peak of wildfires and you can, you can link that back to 40 degree temperatures Dry weather starting, you know, way back in March, where you would normally start to see grass fires happening towards June and July, and then the season running even longer up into September, October time. So there's a correlation there back into climate, and I don't think that's going to go away. My 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 role for the next number of years is the the wildfire lead is to look at what mitigation and what prevention looks like and education, so we can stop. The you know the careless disposal of barbecue, the bonfire, the use of fireworks, you know fire pits in back gardens. If we can just educate our people a lot better and probably get ourselves on the same foot as what happens in uh, in the states and across in, in America, uh, sorry across in Australia and Canada. For me, education is the that's the, the key in the door uh, to make sure we can we can actually do something to prevent wildfires. Mm. I mean that was going to be my question. I mean what role uh does the education of you know communities play in that so is that all that we can do i mean it's uh, and i think matt touched upon it uh in his segment uh when he came online with us is that uh it's just not being aware in this country like you know you would have a different conversation uh, and it most would be an easier conversation if you're a fire and rescue uh, team down in Australia or in California because, you know, these are literally, you, you know, not just yearly occur- occurrences, but it's a way of life down there. Um, whereas, really, we're still, I suppose, infants compared to them in this, in this, in, uh, with this experience of wildfire. Yeah, and I think we. I think we all have a, a long hard look at what happened in, in Canada and Greece and Hawaii. So although they, they are, they're separated by thousands of, of miles, there, there, is, there is something happening within those environments. Their wildfires are, are starting earlier, they're lasting longer and they're causing more damage to, uh, to premises and, and occupiers' houses and so on. Hmm. I mean, that's, a, that's sorry to yeah, jump in there, Jim. That, that, that's a really good point because, you know, what... Can say, for instance, homeowners and communities who are actually situated in areas which may be prone to wildfire. I mean, what advice would you have to offer to enhance or you know, to get them prepared uh, if something were to happen? Yeah, that's a, that's a great that's a great point. Um, the the first thing I would I would ask is to think about the think about the, the perimeter where you've got grass coming right up to the back door mm-hmm. of a of a premise. Think about the 
think about the, the risk in terms of if a wildfire did happen and it came right up against your, your boundary, how can you how could you stop that? So whether that is a, an area where the landowner has to cut away and creates a bit of a fire break around the, the back door, whether that's making sure your garden is um, is as clean as you possibly can from dry leaves or, or any bits of garden material that could be very, very tender dry mm-hmm. and all it takes is, a, is an ember to, to come across. Right through to, there's, you know, there is a number of products where you can actually use to, to paint a fire retardant onto garden sheds and garden benches. But, but again, for me, this is about being ready, being in a, in a position where you, you know when a, a warm period is going to come up. Mm-hmm. And simple things like, you know, recycle, recycle the, the grey water that you get from your gutters and make sure your gardens are, are kept as... As, as you know, as, as moist as you possibly can mm. at any given time, especially around the peak times, and just to be aware, just be fire aware that mm-hmm. that could be, that wildfire could start, mm. uh, and it could start really close to the back of your house. Mm-hmm. Very wise words there, Jim. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking to you this afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Andrew, thanks very much for giving me the time. Yep. It's been a pleasure. Take, take care. Have a good day. Thank you. Yeah, bye bye. Bye. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam uh, UK. Um, you know, just to wrap up uh, this about uh, wildfires and climate change. I mean, you know, Ranan, what does Islam say about climate change and how to tackle it? Uh, well, regarding climate change, uh, well, regarding this, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masurim says, climate change is a problem everywhere, all across the world, especially in third world countries, where the population is increasing disproportionately. Just to accommodate the increased populations, uh, nations are developing new residential areas and because of this forests are being cut and this deforestation is a major cause of climate change so you have to be very particular that whenever one tree is cut two two trees should be planted in return fuel consumption should also be reduced now people have become so lazy that if they want to go from one place to another place and distance is only let's say 100 yards or 200 yards instead of walking to the place they use their motorbike or car in this way Pollution is increasing. There are so many other factors which are also causing uh, pollution and climate change. So we have to be very careful. Although we cannot say that because of the fear of climate change, we should not have children. That that last part is a bit... Uh, you know, it's, it, was, it just kind of threw me off. Like, okay, yeah, well, it's, it's not in terms of like, yeah. Uh, yeah, that we shouldn't have children just because of climate yeah. change. I mean, His Holiness states some of the ways we can adopt uh, to help the environment that can, you know, in turn help improve our climate as a whole. So, in, uh, by adopting these, you know, these ways, we can make a small but yet meaningful change to our environment and so in conclusion when dealing with wildfires and climate change is a bit like solving a puzzle like Jenga really yeah. uh, with many pieces that fit together it's a big challenge and both problems uh, all, all these problems are interlinked uh, in complicated yeah, in very complicated ways and you know I think you know, going back to what we were saying initially yeah. that it's not just one factor I mean the environment as we know it today that we live in uh, has changed yeah. and you know we have to make um, strive well, we have to strive to make it better yeah. because if we don't then successive generations are only going to reap all that discontent and all that uh, basically you know the, the climate change the sharp end of the stick yeah. uh, 
I'm, you know, I'm not saying that um, we are prone to it in the sense of, yes, we're getting a wildfire every day, but we do see the frequency of these uh, occurrences and these events more and more so nowadays, yeah. don't we? As, you, as the, um, you know, the, the second caller in particular, Jim, Jim. you know, he, those statistics he shared, you know, they were quite... They were astounding, you know. I mean, just to, yeah, to jump like from one year to the next. So I think what, what over, do you say? Over five hundred percent increase, exactly, right? Exactly. It's it's um so so with you know guys who are actually researching this, you know, they have uh, very important information to give, and it's mm-hmm. um, it's not just information; it's like a warning as well. Yeah. So, uh, but see, the problem is, Rana, right? We've had these warnings. Yeah. Is when will the penny drop? Does exactly. the policymakers to actually say, look, you know what, we have to do something? Yeah. I think that we established that as well during our conversation earlier. That until it doesn't, you know, it's not at their doorstep. Uh, mm-hmm. They're not. You, you, you would, you wouldn't expect them to make a budge for it, do you? Mm-hmm. So basically, you know, our policymakers maybe they shouldn't be making fire breaks yeah, in their backyards. Our policymakers are usually going <laughs> off for like uh, trips to, um, you know. X, Y, Z, aren't they, really? (laughs) Away from those uh, fires and stuff. Testing their eyesight as well, you know? Yeah, exactly, (laughs) exactly, back in the day. Anyway, we're coming up to the 5 o'clock news. Please join us, stay with us uh, after the news, where we will be talking about Uh, uh, the uh, Afghani situation. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Asalaamu Alaikum. Peace and blessings to all our listeners out there. Welcome back to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, and Imam, my co host, Imam Arana Atta. So, we dealt with uh, in our first hour climate change and it, with respect to climate change. Um, Wildfires. So we're going to move on to another sensitive topic, right? Uh, the Afghan uh, situation. You know, is it is it forgot? Uh, is it you know forgotten now, right? So what what have we got to say about this then, Rana? Um, well, Allah the Almighty states in the Holy Quran, and when he is in authority, he runs about in the land to create disorder in it, and destroy the crops and the progeny of men. And Allah loves not distor- uh, disorder. In the wake of the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan in 2021, the country and its people yet again find themselves grappling with the with a complex and multifaceted struggle. Known for their oppressive rule in the late 20th century, the return of this regime has plunged Afghanistan into a state of uncertainty, bringing back old fears and igniting new challenges. This, this seismic shift in power not only rekindled political and security concerns, but has also given a rise to a profound humanitarian crisis compelling compelling Afghans to face hardships on a daily basis as the Afghan people navigate the uncertain terrain of changed socio-political landscape their resilience and fortitude are being tested like never before mm. so so there we go right said in a nutshell I mean failed promises uh, we're talking about um, in I'm sure most of our listeners saw the news, right? So in 2021, I think around about July, the UK government pledged a significant cross-government effort dubbed Operation Warm Welcome, 
Hmm. which was meant to ensure the uh, safety and stability of Afghans who had helped the British during the conflict. Uh, it was meant to provide vital support to rebuild their lives, uh, find work, pursue education and integrate into their local communities as they arrived in the UK. So the acronym for this was ARAP, uh, the Afghan Relocations and Assistance Policy, uh, initiate, uh, which was initiated in April 2021. Now, this offered, uh, or yes, supposedly offered assistance to Afghan individuals who collaborated with the UK government in vulnerable roles. However, its eligibility criteria uh, was limited, excluding NGOs and aid sector workers whose work makes them at risk from the Taliban. Uh, additionally, the uh, Arab apl application process uh, it was very prolonged, intensifying the peril for many individuals in Afghanistan. Uh, a, a different or another uh, process or scheme uh, was the uh, also initiated by the UK government, the Afghan Citizens Resettlement Scheme. Uh, and this was open to Afghan uh, citizens linked to the UK government, including British Council teachers, individuals who had supported British forces, uh, embassy staff. And this scheme emphasised the aiding of women, children and minor minority groups threatened by the Taliban. However... Afghans have not received the warm welcome that was promised. Delays in processing documents being stuck in hotel rooms for months and unable to find suitable accommodation have le left many feeling hopeless. And uh, I'm just going to pull up, actually, Rana, a, a stat regarding uh, these, um, well, regarding these, the, the, these resettlement schemes, right? Uh, I'm not sure if you're, you're aware of them, but... Uh, Basically, I was looking at how many um, Afghans uh, have the U.S. Uh, sorry, the U.K. resettled, and you know, and this is according to um, the the news whereby in the year ending March 2023, 19 percent of all channel crossings were made by Afghan nationals. 8,429 Afghans crossed the channel while only 96, 96 have been newly resettled. This 96 figure includes arrivals through that uh, the, the scheme I was talking about, the ACRS, uh, UK um, resettlement schemes. So that does beg the question, how effective are these schemes? If you know, the, you know, these are people who have helped the UK government, the British government, uh, in a hostile territory. And not myself, I'm not saying this, but uh, some news sources would say that they, you know, those people who have been left behind, those Afghan nationals who have been left behind in Afghanistan because they haven't been able to access these schemes. routes yep. and these schemes to come over here into the UK have been, I suppose, just, for want of a different you know, uh, term, just left to die. Left to die or, look, it's... Um, deserted. It deserted as well. And, uh, you know, it's... You know, I remember when um, when the Taliban took over uh, and they were doing, you know, CNN were doing all of their interviews and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, they were on, on the ground. And, uh, you know, it was. I think it was the New Age 
kind of like okay a new age version of what Taliban truly is okay there's this version that you you understand in the year 2001 because of the mm. uh, 9/11 not uh, just that but i think yeah. uh, more more recently isis yeah and you know. later on propaganda as well and then yeah. there is this like this modern explanation and yeah, the cleaned up version and i remember one of the uh, i think it might have been the he might have actually been the foreign minister for instance mm. uh, he was uh, obviously a, a fully uh, you can imagine in the, in the talib uh, yeah, because like, oh, you guys, don't, oh, you don't know our people. They will do anything to. They, we don't have problems there. We, we, they'll do anything to just leave the country. So, um, do we take his? You know, is there? <laughs> do, you, do you see where I'm coming from? Mm. There, there might be some context in that as well. Mm. But look, this element of actually uh, traveling away and resettling, uh, we're not. We're not experts at resettling as well. We're, mm. You know, we we can obviously comment and we can say, well, why is this taking so long? Mm. What is the reason why? Okay, only ninety six out of one thousand uh, have mm-hmm. been resettled. There could be a lot of complexities in in regards to actually, you know, do where where are they going to resettle them? Mm. You know, there is this question. Uh, it takes time, and then you have this issue with um, I wouldn't I don't know if it's an issue for some or if it if it is an issue. You have like Suella. Uh, she's um, you know how welcoming is her policies well they're not they're not exactly <laughs> uh, so that you know is that the reason are these the obstacles are you trying to uh, delay it as much as possible I mean I th- very valid points here Rana, yeah. but the thing is yeah when you have uh, been in a foreign country yeah right um, and then purportedly for 20 odd years you've brought democracy to this country yeah. right because it's the way to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's how, um, you know, the Western world thinks. Yeah. Right. That democracy is the best political yeah. setup. Yeah. Right. For any country. Yeah. Right. So you've had that experiment. Yes. In Afghanistan for 20 odd years. Yeah. You've provided um, a new generation of Afghan nationals, men and women. Yeah. Right. A hope, yeah. Right, a dream yes. that actually, you know what, we can live in a democratic society. And then overnight, the US and the UK have left. Now, does that mean that democracy really isn't worth fighting for? Right, especially if it's not your home, yeah. it's not your country. You know, right. The, the, but no, I'm, 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 let me yeah, get to my get point. Yeah, so. In those years, you've had nationals who have helped. Yeah. Okay. Whether they be uh, translators, whatever, right? They've they've helped uh, the UK, the US uh, in translation, in integrating, in in in, in building the infrastructure. Fending off, fending right. off, because it's it's an element. It's this aspect of it that as soon as they left, overnight, you say they came in, so they were fending off. Mm. There wasn't any. The, the project was not finished in 20 years it, mm. it, 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 it might have taken no but my point is yeah. this here that you have um, given assurances yeah. to them right so don't worry we'll protect you right we'll protect you yeah. and everything and then overnight you've just stolen away you've just left that country yeah, right we don't know who you are yeah. <laughs> and so what with these promises are, you know, are we not as good as our word nowadays is the UK government not honouring what it said? 
Well, and so that's that's for me the problem, right? Because I believe in integrity. We here at uh, the Voice of Islam Drive Time Show, and as Muslims and as just human beings, right? We believe in justice, don't we? And and, and I would like to give the benefit of the doubt um, to the if 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 the UK government is in question, I would like mm. to give them the benefit of the doubt because um, you know, it, for instance, we are, let's say it's our job now, right? Me mm. and you. How do how would you uh, fulfill this promise? There's people st- stranded back there mm-hmm. who we have promised to bring over to. But no, rather the the point is here. It's we can talk about promises, but actually, it's their lies on the yeah. line, right? If well, they get caught, they're going to get killed, yeah. right? How because are we going to do it? How are we going to? Ex- well, to start extra- off with, I wouldn't I wouldn't extract or physically, you know, with a C four, tra- you know, transport. Yeah. I wouldn't be extracting pets, yeah, right? Of which they did do the UK government, yeah. right? when they left Afghanistan. Yep. I would prioritize human, a human, human life lives, yep. above someone's pet's life, yep. right? No, dis- no dis- disrespect. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I've got a pet, right? Yeah. I love my pet, right? But still, come on. So, you know, with that in your mind, you'd think, right, okay, um, you know, I can't just abandon these people, right? Where is the humanity there? Well, th- but hold on. I'm going to hold that yeah, for. Yeah, no we're going to come back to it. Uh, we've got our first guest of the day regarding this, uh, who is Dr. Nur Al Haq, and uh, we're joined by uh, Dr. Nur Al Haq, who is the founder and director of Afghanistan and Central Asian Association. Assalamualaikum, peace and blessings be upon you, Dr. Nur Al Haq. Uh, thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show to talk about this. Hello, salam alaikum, and thank you for inviting me. So we're talking about Afghanistan, and uh, yeah, yeah, has the world forgotten about them? I mean, tell us about your organisation uh, and what's the idea behind it. Just let our listeners have a brief look at it. So I'm not here to talk about uh, on behalf of the organisation because the organisation is a, a charity founded by myself when I arrived uh, as a refugee in the United Kingdom 24 years ago, helping the refugees from Afghanistan on a grassroots and frontline level, mm-hmm. supporting integration and helping the new our people to improve a bit of future, to improve their confidence and participation in a community life, educational, especially language classes, women empowerment, volunteering placements, mentoring, free legal advice, mm-hmm. and conferences, uh, training on capacity building, and so many other things. But I think that he, I understand about the, the conversation that you have so far about the situation in Afghanistan mm-hmm. and the position of the ways why they have left Afghanistan. Uh, the hand of the Taliban mm-hmm. but I would like to speak as the maybe opposition in exile or maybe representative, a representative of the diaspora community mm-hmm. which they don't have any voice at the moment they don't have any uh, they don't have any uh, participation in any talk on Afghanistan and unfortunately uh, since the creation of Afghanistan in the 19th century as a buffer zone. And I, to be honest, for the past two years, I was very anxious about the withdrawal of troops 
from Afghanistan, but now I consider the withdrawal of troops in a positive way mm -hmm. to make sure that people around the world they understand the internal tribal differences uh, the, in terms of the indigenous and non-indigenous, the majority and the minority, whether we are a nation or a, just a tribe uh, with different culture, different languages, a different tradition. As you know that Afghanistan is a fragile state, created as a buffer zone or buffer state in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. In the creation of Afghanistan as a buffer zone in the 19th century, the people who are dominating power, they are just one ethnic group that we call them Pashtun, mm -hmm. who are the minority, where the majority of people and the indigenous of the country, they are the Tajiks, or sometimes we call them Persian or Farsi speakers, consist 55% of the population. Uh, the people who resisted against the USSR. I don't know if you are aware, when the Soviet Union uh, invaded Afghanistan, uh, the only community who uh, resisted against the USSR, it was uh, the projects in the north of Afghanistan mm -hmm. uh, allowed the USSR to expand their military uh, bases to the south of Afghanistan, near to the Pakistani border. So, People in the north, they sacrificed and lost uh, two million lives to fight against the USSR. But then, unfortunately, because these people, they were involved heavily in fighting, they keep uh, very isolated in terms of education, lobbying, diplomacy, uh, language skill. And then, Ashraf Ghani Ahmadzai and Khalilzad, who are the supporter of the Taliban, mm -hmm. managed to uh, take advantage uh, to resume uh, the Pashtun domination once again in the 21st century by bringing the Taliban back to power. We have to also understand that the uh, peace talk with the Taliban uh, and Mr. Khalilzad the U.S. ambassador on Afghanistan wasn't very transparent. Mm -hmm. uh, there wasn't any uh, participation of different opposition, different fraction. It was only uh, Mr. Khalizad, the U.S. ambassador, and the Taliban groups, sometimes the representative of Ashraf Ghani Ahmadzai. So, sorry, sorry, Dr. Nurahak. Can I just in interject there? So our idea that for the you know that period of time where uh, the U.S. government and the U.K. government had supposedly brought democratic elections to Afghanistan, you're saying that actually, really, they weren't a democratic, uh, or it doesn't reflect the true um, ethnicity and. Uh, all the different elements within Afghanistan. So it wasn't really uh, a democracy. It's just actually a minority Pashtun uh, kind of fragment which actually was in control of the whole of Afghanistan. Well then, this is the biggest problem that the people around the world, they don't know. There are unreported human rights abuses, unreported human rights violations, is a, is a serious concern since the creation of Afghanistan, what they have done to the people, uh, to the indigenous 
Tajiks, unfortunately, during Hafizullah Amin, during Amir Abdurrahman Khan, during Amir Dost Muhammad Khan, during Nader Shah, during uh, Hikmatyar, and during the Taliban. That's why I consider the situation, hopefully, in a positive way, where eventually we have to find out a sustainable solution mm-hmm. rather than just have a, again, another coalition or maybe another maybe transition for Afghanistan and then uh, having the same constitution that we have in the past and just uh, again lying to the nation, lying to the world and saying, oh, we are now hoping to build a democratic institution where you can note build a democratic institution with the people who has been running the country for over 150 years mm. and we are in Mm. Yeah, I understand your point, Doctor. Uh, But if we bring uh, you back to the conversation regarding, uh, say, for instance, Afghan refugees here in the UK uh, and your your, your organization helps them. I mean, yeah, Afghans were promised a warm welcome in the UK. uh, But for a lot of refugees, it's not been that easy. I mean, could you shed some light on what the situation is for them, you know, Afghan refugees here in the UK? I think we would like to say thank you very much to the British people, to the British public, and to the British government for the hospitality they provided to over 25,000 refugees uh, uh, evacuated in August 2021. I have to tell you, the uh, Great Britain was the first country acted promptly and immediately after the crisis mm-hmm. in August to bring thousands of people to the United Kingdom and giving them a very, very expensive, beautiful and five-stars hotel. But of course, because of the Ukrainian crisis and because of the housing crisis that we have in the UK for more than years, maybe even uh, the British people, uh, most of them, they are homeless and they don't have access to housing for the past 20 years. And the housing crisis started in London long and long time ago. So the the biggest maybe challenge uh, for the local authorities uh, was to find the right accommodation for this huge number of families, uh, consist uh, 10, 15 people. Uh, we are easily, which easily you can't find. Uh, six or seven bedrooms uh, in so London. Doc, yeah. doc, doctor, just to um, in, like interject there as well. Um, so, what is like uh, you know what is these? How would you uh, address this challenge? How would you uh, find you know? How would you like to see those um, you know th- those people being housed? I think again, I would like to again once again thanks to the Home Office and the local authorities uh, after the announcement or the plan introduced by the Home Office. Uh, almost four months ago and giving uh, three months time to the refugees who have been stuck in the Belgian hotels uh, to accept any offer will be made by the local authorities and this was a very good plan introduced by the Home Office which means that most of those refugees who have been rejected number of times the offer they received from the local authorities and most of them insisted to stay in London again the problem around living in London is a big crisis a lot of people they want to stay in London but London 
is a busy city yeah. and the government 10 years ago they started uh, sending people outside london because of the shortage of housing uh, mm. I, i guess people in london now are also considering that we want to be <laughs> We want to move outside of London as well. I think it's exactly. well, Dr. Nura Hack. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for spending time with us here at the Drive Time Show this afternoon. Thank you very much. And Thank have you. a good day. Thank you. Oh two oh eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Um, yeah, so that was. Yeah, a bit bizarre, actually, I've got to say, <laughs> because um, and, you know, to counter not some of the because I don't know about you, Rana, I got the feeling that Dr. Nurahag was quite happy yeah. with the government's uh, treatment of it, Afghan I, refugees. I'm, I'm pretty not. I'm still trying to work out whether he was happy or he. I know. I think he was because I think he, was. Um, he I'm not sure he said, well, I'm, I'm happy with this, uh, you know, the the US and the, the, the them them leaving. Mm. Because it brought some, you know. No, I think he was happy about that because then it's left yeah. to you know, Afghans to decide for themselves what the right. You know, But what then right he explained a lot is. of uh, a lot of the inner, the inner intricate uh, yeah, issues the that they have. Like it's 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 not they're not one identity. There is so many identities because mm. of the different tribes and the different, and it's really really difficult to actually formulate them under one constitution mm -hmm. to follow so um which is you know that, that these sort of things as i said it is context mm -hmm. why is it taking long is this the re what is the mm -hmm. reason you know these con i i think for myself i think he was quite happy yeah. with that point uh what i had maybe issues with was the 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 treatment of the refugees whilst they're here yeah and just to give some context and actually some facts right now as of november 2022 over 11,600 individuals had been relocated to the uk under the arab scheme uh, including those evacuated during operation pitting uh, in august 2021 now a majority of these have been in hotels for over a year awaiting suitable accommodation The Ministry of Defense estimates that around 4,600 Afghans, including dependents, are still eligible for relocation. Around 1,600 of these people have already received a relocation offer. Not all are expected to relocate. There are over 72,000 Arab applications still waiting for a decision. Hmm. The vast majority of which are anticipated to be ineligible for relocation so my point being those 72,000 most probably are not going to get you know a, a thumbs up mm. though you're going to be relocated can you imagine the terror that they're living in and currently uh, uncertainty yeah uncertainty and what like I'm my question would be that okay if they do not get relocated they don't get the thumbs up or are you going to be sending them back to are they going to be deported back to uh, you know What well, you I, consider I mean, is we're, we're, we're not we're not aware as to because these are applications, right? Yeah. Where are those applicants? Yeah, they may not well be in the UK. They may well still be okay in Afghanistan. Oh, okay, okay, so hiding in Afghanistan, right? Okay. right? I, I believe so. I, I was I was sort of under the yeah. uh, misunderstanding that they might still be here and looking for the relocation. No, no, because um, yeah. we've got. I mean, those figures were. Um, Uh, 1, 000, uh, sorry, 11,600 individuals oh, have, have been, been relocated, relocated. Uh, and the majority of these are still in hotels for over a year. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know 
really. Yeah, I personally think that you know it's a slow process. It is a slow. In, it's become slower because of the Ukraine war as well. Yeah, yeah. There's two. It's it, two sets of massive. But uh, you know, there there is a very pertinent question, right? Yeah. You're, you're a refugee. You're a refugee. Yeah. So does the refugee or being a refugee um, is that a contingent of your color then? I hope not. I wish. I, w- I would hope not. I would like to think not. Based on what we're seeing from yeah. the UK government, I don't know. It seems yeah. so, right? So why are? And I wish. I wish. Yeah, you know, the government could. You know, we get, could get a minister, maybe, maybe Suella Braverman to yeah, come. Yeah, I mean, the Home Office give me have, the answer. Yeah. that why? So you know, is there a difference? Why are we treating refugees differently? Due, I mean, to, the, the, due to their ethical, okay. Yeah. Look, there is this. Um, I'm not an expert. Are we, you, hey, I'm not. I don't work for the Home Office, and I don't know the answer for that. Mm. But the thing is, look, I do believe that the Home Office has to do a vetting, vetting process. But Rana, the because thing this, is, this, it is a matter of. No, I understand. I yeah. understand. Right. So their their argument is that you know we don't want refugees are just coming out there, or not refugees. They they're known as what's the terminology that the government well, uses? Economic migrants. Yeah. Right. So. Um, with these Afghan, and I quote you the figure, right? Or already about eight thousand odd, mm. yeah, in crossings, but only ninety six, right, yeah. have actually been given the green know, the, light to go the green light, yeah. right? So, you know, that's the thing. This this is such a, so kind of you know a sensitive subject, yeah. right? But it's a bit like an elephant in the in in the corner of the room. Yeah. No one really wants to address it, right? Yeah. So when the Ukraine war started, Ukraine Russian war started, suddenly there were legal ways, right, for yeah. Ukrainians to to claim refugee status in the UK. But hasn't that always been? I mean, uh, to my my understanding, Syrian war has been happening since 2012, right? Yeah. So that's 11 years. So how comes there is not a validated government scheme to allow Syrian refugees to come into this country I, I, you know this goes into the con- <laughs> this, this goes into the discussion of uh, which identity is more relatable um, mm. did you see my point yeah exactly uh, and look, I, don't, I don't want to make cons- assumptions like that uh, because the, I this know, can I'm, go I'm into pushing a, you into yeah, 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 right? I don't want to make worry. it into a r- I, racial div- diversity but it is it is yeah but it is unfortunately yeah. but anyway we're, we're joined by our next guest uh, Jess Ridgewell <laughs> so uh, to talk more regarding this issue now Jess is head of corporate partnerships at Breaking Barriers the leading refugee employment charity helping refugees to find meaningful employment and build a new life in the UK uh, peace and blessings be upon you Jess thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show today Hello, yeah, thank you for having me and thank you importantly for, for raising this because as you said, headlines change and there are still a lot of Afghan refugees in this country, in the UK, who are needing to rebuild their lives and, and they need support and they're facing a lot of challenges. So mm, yeah, I'm mm. really happy that we can we can bring this to everyone's attention. Yeah, sorry, I was getting a bit heated with my co-host here. I was pushing him down a corner and you know, trying to kind of elicitate a, a response. But yeah, maybe you can join in the conversation. Well, obviously you, you must be able to join in this conversation i mean you know as 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 in terms of afghan refugees yeah what are some of the common challenges faced by um you know afghan refugees when it comes to employment or education yeah and how you know <coughs> with the help of your your uh, your organization do do they overcome these 
Yeah, so breaking barriers are specialism in employment. So it's supporting those people who identify as being from as a refugee background or people who have come through on some of those schemes, as you mentioned earlier, so um, through the Arab scheme or have found themselves in the UK and they've gone through that asylum process to claim uh, their refugee status. So at Breaking Barriers, we're supporting people from, gosh, I mean, 79 different countries. So it really is a lot of different places, um, not just those that hit the headlines. But, you know, 20% of the clients we're supporting um, in London are from Afghanistan. So it's a really significant um, group um, that have come to the UK in the last two years and, you know, even before, before then. So... As we know, um, you know, even resettling into a new country brings a whole um, host of challenges as we've been hearing. From our experience, um, refugees from all countries and, and those including Afghanistan do face a lot of barriers when trying to navigate a new life in the UK. So there's the long asylum system. We know there's a huge backlog at the moment where people are waiting the outcome of their decision. Suitable housing, as you've touched on, and people still in hotels two years after arriving in the UK. Um, discrimination, a lack of understanding, um, you know, how to go to and where to go for help. But one of the key areas I think we would all, you know, agree in terms of rebuilding your life in a new country is, is accessing work and being able to, you know, provide for yourself and your family and being financially independent and, and self-sufficient. So one of the challenges we find is that access to the labour market. It's not being able to get a job. It's uh, not having your qualifications and your skills recognised, uh, challenge around English language, um, and even employer attitude and discrimination, you know, not being able, not being offered that job because employers aren't sure if they can, they can hire you. And I think all of that um, has led to a really, really high unemployment rate amongst the refugee population. Mm-hmm. And that is despite having really high levels of skills and education. So that's where Breaking Barriers has sort of stepped in. We've, we've, we've um, ensured that we can boost the, the very specific employment and education support that we recognise refugees in this country need to be able to start their work. And, you know, all the refugee clients that, that we work with, they're so desperate to work and contribute. You know, they don't want to be sat in a hotel mm-hmm. two years later. Um, they want to use their skills and qualifications and thrive. And, and that's what we try and do. Mm. I mean, and so, you know, if you can just, you know, uh illustrate not illustrate but actually clarify what actually happens to an afghan refugee once say for instance the the you know uh the, the scheme has um rightly uh said right okay no fine we're gonna give you uh a site or we're gonna give you asylum uh take you in under this scheme what i mean it, it, what's the follow-up from the government then regarding that because i Maybe I'm wrong to assume this, but I would have expected some kind of uh, mechanism from the government uh, to say, right, okay, we're going to try and integrate you into uh, wherever we've relocated you. Is that not the case? Yeah, so I think this probably comes from decades of of an immigration and asylum system that has faced many barriers and challenges and I think the sector agrees um, is broken to a point and that's why we've seen a lot of stretch over the last few years with with an influx of uh, refugees from Afghanistan or Ukraine or even Syria. Um, I suppose the important um, distinction to make is those that come through government schemes such as the Arab scheme mm-hmm. are different are given um, I suppose, different criteria and support than those who are undergoing an asylum claim. Oh, right. So those that have come to us through um, the Afghan uh, resettlement scheme and the Arab <coughs> scheme 
importantly on arrival were given the right to work and that's a really important distinction because it means they can you know essentially have a right to remain in the uk for a number of years and get to work Mm -hmm. whereas those who have come to the uk perhaps of their own accord and are lost in an asylum system waiting a number of years to get their claim at that point they don't have the right to work they only get their right to work when they get the refugee status so Mm -hmm. if we look at the group say who have come to come through uh, on the government um, schemes um they would be given a really small um you know barely enough to live on every week um they're given some level of accommodation which obviously a lot of that is very temporary um and they are given some support um around job coaches to support um their needs however um we've got a huge demand on you know on employment support on education support and um i think a lot of uh, the organizations are on uh, don't have a level of expertise that is perhaps needed if you're someone from a refugee background and has had to flee your home mm. um without a last minute thought and you know you i mean the, 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 there's a the trauma of fleeing war absolutely right? Absolutely, yeah. it's something that I'm, you know, obviously I, I'm very lucky that I can't, I can't relate to. But it's our um, trained employment team. So we have a team of trained employment advisors who are specially trained to support, and many of those, many of them are from refugee backgrounds themselves, mm-hmm. to work directly with, um, with refugees. So we had our teams actually going in London, especially going up to the hotels and meeting with um, Afghan refugees. They speak Farsi, they speak the language, they're able to build a connection and really provide very detailed, tailored support, understanding someone's sort of needs, their education level, their their job level, and helping them navigate from the journey of arrival to thinking, where do I fit in this, you know, strange new city? What are the opportunities available to me? Helping to signpost, helping to uh, get access to support they need to overcome the barriers to starting a new life. And Mm. then where we come in is the employment piece. So really enabling Mm. someone to update their CV, navigate the job market. Um, In my role, I work with um, a whole different range of businesses who um, will support our refugee clients and help actually place them into work. So Mm. actually this time two years ago, our phone was off the hook from hundreds of businesses who had seen what had happened on the news, were devastated to see people fleeing and called one and said, how can we help? And, you know, we want to be able to hire people, we want to be able to step in. So, mm. you know, it's very solution-focused in terms of engaging the business community, but there's no doubt about it, there's a huge amount of challenges that refugees face when trying to navigate that on their own, and that's where our support comes in. Mm. So many of the Afghan immigrants are highly skilled and educated who mm. have to restart their careers all over again, which yes. must be overwhelming for them. So how do you assist them uh, in maintaining their motivation as they embark on this journey? Yeah, and it's a brilliant question because I think there's so many misconceptions that refugees have no skills, no determination to work and no education. And it is the polar opposite. You know, over half of our clients have got higher education. I spend most of my time speaking to amazing refugee candidates who've got PhDs, masters. They were, you know, judges in Afghanistan. They were the first female prosecutors in their state in Afghanistan. Mm. You know, the skill and the talent is incredible. Mm. Um, And it's wasted, you know, no one is tapping into that at the moment. So what we try and do is, firstly, if English language is a a real barrier and challenge, obviously they can't get into the workplace and work at a level they need to without 
good business language in, in English. So we um, we do a kind of propel their English language skills to make sure um, they can improve those. We look at where they might need to retrain. So we've worked specifically with a group of Afghan um, solicitors to support them in uh, retraining to, yep. to qualify here in the UK. Um, we will partner with businesses who will offer work placements. So recognising that someone who was a qualified human rights lawyer in Afghanistan possibly can't transfer straight into that role in the UK yet. Hmm. But if they got a their first work placement in a UK legal firm, being able to build up that confidence again, build up that experience, understanding, and importantly, that network and getting on the right path to requalify in the UK. And um, that's a big part of the very practical employment support. Um, and uh, I'm you know, really pleased over the last few years that we have seen, um, seen you know, ma- make a huge impact. Um, you know, one other example, as you mentioned, with the Arab scheme, is a lot of people come with, with security backgrounds or military backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a sort of temporary measure, um, we've been able to support a number of Afghan refugees through their security licensing um, qualifications, for example, just to get them on the job ladder mm-hmm. in that first instance to try and gain gain some um, independence and um, yeah, and try and get through some of the, the daily barriers mm. and challenges they're facing. I mean, Jess, how do you feel about uh, you know the government's involvement, uh, like as a you know post um, asylum? Uh, say for instance for a refugee you know Afghan refugee even though they do have certain um, I wouldn't say what was the word liberties yeah if they come through the Arab scheme uh, as opposed to just a straight refugee through the asylum system um, you know do you feel that uh, the government can do more compared to, say, for instance, other governments, say, say the French government, actually, whilst uh, someone's seeking asylum, they are, are actually allowed to work? Mm. Well, I mean, we know comparatively the UK um, against the rest of Europe, whether it's Sweden or Germany, we know that we aren't doing enough. And I think, mm. um, again, that's a really common misconception um, that's put out in the media is that we are doing a lot. And we don't even... Um, we're not even in the top 10 host nations of refugees, you know, in comparison to uh, what we could be. So we know that mm. more is needed and mm-hmm. certainly Breaking Barriers does advocate for a more fair and welcoming, inclusive um, uh, policy to, to welcome refugees. And I think for us, it's it's about recognising that it's not just Afghanis, it's not just Syrians, it's not just Ukrainians, you know. Mm. We're, we're supporting people from 60, 70 plus different countries refugees from all different countries are facing these, mm. these challenges and barriers and I think the right to work and the ability to, to work as we all know gives us purpose it gives us financial mm. um, independence and it's a really important part I think at the moment we're very much focusing on those that do have the right to work for those that have come through the, the various schemes mm. and have their refugee status and if we can support those to, to not just survive but thrive I think you know we're, we're, we're doing our job because it, I mean, it seems to me that you know you're, you've got uh, a resource in asylum seekers, uh, like you said, you've you've got a high proportion of the Afghan nationals that you've come across have got uh, higher national education, right? Mm. Um, so then you know if if we have uh, the facility to actually you know utilize them within the economy, it's a benefit to the economy. I would have thought. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, what we've seen um, with the last two years with the crises unfolding in Afghanistan and Ukraine has actually been, you know, 
ahead in the UK job market with huge challenges of skills gaps and um, gaps in, in the labour force. Hmm. Don't get me on um, Brexit, Jess. Market. Don't get me on Brexit. <laughs> we, won't, we certainly won't touch that this afternoon. But uh, So what that's meant is there's, there's a number of industries and sectors, whether it be the hospitality sector or the mm-hmm. tech sector, that are crying out for skills um, and people. And it seems to us, you know, that you've got a, a big pool of refugee talent that can work, want to work, have huge amounts of skills mm-hmm. um, and experience to bring. And that's a role that Breaking Barriers and, and the team that I work for have played, which is bringing businesses, um, making sure they're aware uh, they can hire and support people of a refugee background, speaking to them about their recruitment policies, how they can um, support our refugee candidates to overcome some of those barriers so they don't just fail and fall at the first hurdle of an interview or or submitting their CV and really working with employers to, to welcome, to recruit and integrate refugees into their business so that we can help the refugee clients we work with mm-hmm. um, get into the work to match their skills. But certainly there's, there's a need for it and um, we've seen uh, the refugee clients and candidates that we've placed in businesses um, as a positive ones. outcome yeah. oh absolutely for, yeah. our, for our economy and our society mm, um, you know it's not just a moral ab- obligation it's, it makes business sense as well yeah. um, to the organisations we work with yeah it's a positive do- double whammy well Jess absolutely. it's been a pleasure speaking to you this afternoon thank you very much for joining us on the Drive Time Show thank you for having me thank you have a good day O two oh eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight or tweet us at voiceofislam.co.uk. And you know, just quickly about human rights and you know, what does Islam tell us about, you know, the rights of you know us human beings? And it states in the Quran, and when it is said to them, create not disorder on earth, they say we are only promoters of peace. The resurgence to authority brought swift and severe limitations, with extreme ones being specifically targeted towards women and often enforced under the guide of guise of Islamic law. Well, in regards to uh, the actual question, as you mentioned in human rights, mm. uh, the this verse in particular explains that those who do not uh, honor it or do not care about it they are those who create disorder. disorder. So disorder is the key element that we need to avoid. Okay, mm-hmm. this is um, in in this in this particular uh, you know this particular question. Disorder is the reason where uh, human rights will be violated um, because if there is no system, uh, any it's anyone's it's the rule of the jungle. You could say sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone no one is is safe everyone is or or if there is a system but a system which promotes injustice in, in, right? injustice in the sense that what is uh, well this is actually a very philosoph- you've actually asked me a very philosophical <laughs> philosophical question here what is what is uh, injustice in regards to human nature mm-hmm. okay so something which you would believe that look as a human or as a person this is right. This is what I feel is right, but this is a law which doesn't um, support that feeling. Okay, mm-hmm. it's it, it's a it's a very deep. It's, it goes into like a very deep. Yeah, I suppose it's the subjective, yeah. right? It's like uh, you know, uh, the rule of law. Uh, is it correct in terms of morality? Yeah. 
um, that's definitely a different debate, yeah. right? So anyway, before we go sidetracking Into on a different debate, we were joined by our last guest of the day. Uh, we've got John Norgrove. Now, John uh, has set up a charitable foundation, the Linda Norgrove Foundation, to help women and children affected by the war in Afghanistan. Peace and blessings be upon you, John. Thank you very much for joining us today on the Drive Time Show. Hello, John. Are you there? Uh, I think we're just having a few technical issues. Uh, we'll, we'll come back with John as soon as possible. Uh, yeah, I think he just needs uh, needs needs five minutes time. So you know, we're talking about um, you know human rights and Islam. So the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masrur Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, states: The Holy Quran has instructed that every possible opportunity. Uh, to achieve peace must be pursued no matter how remote the chances of success are. In chapter 49, verse 10, Allah the Almighty states that when two nations are at war, third parties should seek to reconcile them and draw them to a peaceful settlement. If the aggressor continues to wage war, it is up to other nations to join forces and use proportionate and legitimate force to stop the oppressor. However, once these cruelties cease, unjust retribution or revenge must not be exacted. And, you know, I'm going to just play you a quick audio clip uh, from His Holiness uh, and, yeah, just saying, the, you know, the critical need for peace. Suffice to say that if genuine efforts are made to achieve, uh, to um, uh, cultivate peace and to help all countries achieve their potential, the des uh, desperation of people to flee their homes would automatically subside. All that most people desire is the ability to provide for their fam uh, families and it is only when such opportunities are denied to them that they seek to leave their homes in search of a better life. Accordingly, the long-term solution to the immigration crisis has to be to establish peace in war-torn countries and to help the local people who have been forced to endure lives of uh, misery and danger to live peacefully. <clears throat> In the short term, where refugees are or um, uh, asylum seekers come to the West due to the prevailing political or religious conditions in their own countries, they should be treated with dignity and respect. At the same time, whatever support they are given should not be at the expense of existing citizens. Immigrants should be strongly encouraged to enter employment as soon as possible rather than leaving off benefits for long periods. They should work hard, seek to stand upon their own two feet and contribute positively to their new society. Otherwise, if they are continually funded by taxpayers' money, it will inevitably lead to grievances. Indeed, it is my belief that the underlying cause of most resentment in society tends to be economic, 
and financial frustration. Certain groups take advantage of such anxiety by laying the blame at the feet of immigrants or at the, at the followers of religion and incite sentiments of hatred towards them. Thus, an impression has developed in Europe that Asians, Africans, and particularly Muslim immigrants are a threat to society. In the United States, there are similar fears regarding Muslims and also Hispanic seeking to enter the country through Mexico. Nonetheless, I firmly believe that if the major powers set aside their own Western interests and strive earnestly towards improving the economic conditions of poorer nations and treat them with sympathy and respect, such issues would never arise. So those were the words of His Holiness Mirza Masra Ahmed, head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community. So we're going to go back or you know, link up with John Norgrove. Peace be upon you, John. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show today. Yes, hello. Very pleased to be here. So um, if you would be kind enough, John, to share with us, uh, you know, about the Linda Norgrove uh, Foundation. You know, just tell us a little bit about it. And you know, what ways uh, do the donations uh, uh, you know, are used to provide help in Afghanistan? Okay, so um, my wife and I, we set up the Linda For Norgrove Foundation after our daughter, Linda Norgrove, who was an aid worker in Afghanistan, was um, kidnapped by the Taliban and then mm -hmm. she died in a failed rescue attempt. Right. So we set up the foundation to help women and children in Afghanistan, which was something very dear to her heart. And what we've tried to do is through giving relatively small amounts of money through gain from private donations, we have no government money, we give these relatively small quantities of money to help individual people in Afghanistan. And it, often at the moment, it's uh, families which are headed by women who haven't got a man to earn money or they're in a desperate state at the moment because they're not allowed to work and difficult for them even to go out without a man and also uh, to help girls. We, we did sponsor quite a lot of girls to go to university but since the universities have closed, mm. that program has closed down. Mm. So John, I mean, how do you uh, identify and get that aid to you know those 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 you know women who deserve well who need it out there? Because there yeah. must be so many uh, hurdles that you need to you know to overcome. Uh, it's not easy. It's not easy. <laughs> we've been doing it for thirteen years now, mm -hmm. um, so we've we've gained quite a few contacts in the country. Um, and got to know quite a few local charities. So we tend to work, we don't like to work through the big European charities. We tend to try and work through local Afghan charities if we can. And um, certainly we've, we've been su surprised, <coughs> I suppose, by just how honest people have been in Afghanistan mm -hmm. and how well they've delivered the project. Right, okay. Okay. The foundation pays special attention to the education of females. How do you navigate cultural and societal norms to support women in Afghanistan through your programs? 
Well, we, we were we were giving a lot of scholarships to women to attend university, and when the universities closed, we were giving 165 scholarships to women. Mm. We gave we paid the fees, and we also paid for their living allowances. Mm. We're no longer allowed to do that, um, but we have found ways to help. So we're currently starting a program of supporting women who are still allowed to study midwifery and dent and um, nursing. Okay. Mm. So we've got a small program doing that, and we're helping. We do. We help quite a lot of. We've trans- transitioned really to help quite a lot of uh, organisations that are providing medical support to women in the country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so yep. John, yeah, you know, I mean, considering yeah you know, the volatile situation in that region and in, in Afghanistan itself, I mean, how you know are you well? You know, what are, what are the insights that you can share with us about the long-term sustainability of those you know, projects like yourself in Afghanistan? Well, the, in 13 years moving in Afghanistan, the, the, the thing which has come in most clear to us is that it's very difficult to make long-term plans. Mm-hmm. We tend to work from year to year and things have been upset terribly kind of every every couple of years since we've started there so who knows what's going to happen in afghanistan it's very difficult to tell Mm -hmm. Um, i mean uh, generally people are are, are very anti-taliban and certainly Mm -hmm. we don't agree with a a lot of the measures especially towards women which have implemented but i think it's quite a positive thing that Afghanistan is being run by Afghans and that mm. we no longer have Russian troops in there or American troops or foreigners in general. You know, it's the country looking after itself, which is a, which I think is a positive step. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, do, you, do you believe that the current immigration policies effectively assist refugees by providing them with adequate support? What measures could be taken to offer more sustainable assistance? Mm. Uh, well, there's a the, the government said after the airlift two years ago that they were going to take in 20,000 Afghan refugees. Mm. And uh, the, the progress they've made to date has been pretty poor. Mm. Um, they've taken in the refugees who were taken out during the airlift, and over above them, out of supposedly 20,000, we've seen something like about 40 or 50. So the government aren't really living up to the promises they made. Mm. The answer to that. Mm. So, I mean, in that respect, I mean, what measures do you think the government should, um, you know, should take? I mean, uh, to my mind, they're they're just sat on their hands regarding uh, these these uh, these two schemes that they've got currently. Uh, is there anything else that they could do better? Certainly that should open up the Afghan citizen resettlement scheme further than it has been opened up. That's, I mean, the, the government have difficulties certainly because we've had such a flood of refugees from Ukraine as well as from other areas of the world. So the government has its difficulties, but to say that they're going to take in 20,000 and then take in something less than 50 in the first two and a bit years, it just isn't good enough. Yeah, true, true. I, I totally agree with you that. So, John, um, it's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Thank you very much for uh, spending time with us on the Drive Time Show today. No, oh, 
It's been a pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you. for having us. Have All a right. good day. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. But just in conclusion regarding this, um, in chapter 42, verse 43 of the Holy Quran, it says, The blame is only on those who wrong men and... The blame is only on those who wrong men and transgress in the earth without justification. Such will a grievous punishment. So as the Afghan people navigate the uncertain terrain of a changed socio-political landscape, their resilience and fortitude are being tested once again. Whilst the global community grapples with the imperative to provide aid and support in the face of an escalating crisis. Let's learn from the failures of the past and amplify our collective voice uh, and work together to build a future where no one is left behind and where the strength of our unity prevails over the gaps of our divisions. Uh, with that, we come to the end of the uh, Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. A big thank you to our producers, Hadia Haseeb, Zili uh, Huma, Saida Tahida Hassan, uh, my co-host Rana Atta, and our technician in the back room, Wahab. That was, or this is the six o'clock news.